I next met with Dr. Julie Graylo to discuss ASCO papers in breast cancer, and she began by commenting on a topic that was also a big part of the recent San Antonio meeting, neoadjuvant treatment in patients with HER2-positive tumors, beginning with a paper by Jenny Chang. Jenny Chang's presentation was a fascinating look at HER2-only therapy with no chemo involved in the pre-op setting, and most of these patients had very large, you know, more advanced tumors. So this trial gave combination trastuzumab and lapatinib, and if you were ER positive, you got endocrine therapy in the form of an AI, or if you were premenopausal, gasserolin and letrozole. It was 12 weeks of just the HER2 with the ER-positive group getting the ER-targeted therapy, and then they went to surgery. And what they found without any chemotherapy being given here was the PATH CR rate was 28% in this group with no chemotherapy. They defined PATH CR as no invasive disease in the breast and ignored the lymph nodes. And I think as we talk about all these pre-op trials, we'll see almost Every trial had a slightly different definition of what PATH-CR meant, so we have to be careful about that. In the ER-positive group, the PATH-CR rate was 21%. It was 40% in the ER-negative group. And then they had this definition that they made up of near PATH-CR, which meant there was less than a centimeter of invasive disease left in the breast. And that achieved a 53% rate with trastuzumab and lapatinib and if you were ear-positive, endocrine therapy. That's really impressive without chemotherapy. Just out of curiosity, what do you think about the idea of actually combining endocrine therapy with the anti-HER therapy simultaneously? Well, we've got some data in the metastatic setting looking at it, and it does seem to add, and it makes sense if you've got two very different unrelated pathways that are associated with the cancer I think you're going to get the best outcome from shutting down both of them. So we have these encouraging data. Of course, we're looking to the ALTO adjuvant trial to see if this plays out in the adjuvant setting. But right now, outside of protocol setting, are there any situations where you'd consider lapatinib, trastuzumab as neoadjuvant therapy, either just the two of them or with chemo? Well, you know, it's a good question that I've struggled with over the last several weeks since ASCO. You know, it's different in the metastatic setting. We've got some other data there. I'll confess, I did start one patient in the last week or so on uh, taxane, trastuzumab, and lapatinib. It was an aggressive cancer, a young woman, and it was pre-op. And I said, well, I've got a couple trials now that show the combination. It gives me at least a better path CR rate. So while I don't in any way mean to say this is a standard of care, and I thought long and hard about it, I wanted the best chance of shrinking the tumor, getting a path CR in that patient. And based on this study and a couple of others that have been presented, I I added both, but I added it with chemo. I didn't do it without the chemo. I'm not quite sure how to pick out the group who can get away with just the HER2-targeted therapy alone, but I sure hope we're going to figure that out. How about people who you don't want to give chemo to? If I had somebody that I was very concerned about the side effects of chemo, or frankly who outright refused it or declined it, then I would consider the combination without chemo in a case-by-case basis, carefully evaluating it. That might be, you know, an older patient who had a lot of comorbidities, and I was afraid that the chemotoxicity would outweigh the benefits. And there, I don't think 
it's crazy to think about giving HER2 with or without the ER-positive combination. Another fascinating neoadjuvant HER2 paper was presented by Frankie Holmes, one of my favorite people. Can you talk about what they looked at? So this was a U.S. oncology group trial that gave a two-week run-in of combination trastuzumab and lapatinib, and then overlapped it with chemo. It was FEC times 4 and then paclitaxel for 12 weeks. But the focus of this presentation was really what the two-week run-in did in terms of a variety of pathways. So for the overall study, the two-week run-in plus the overlap with the chemo, they had a path CR rate for a group that got trastuzumab only of 54%, lapatinib only of 45%, and then both together 70%. So that includes the HER2-targeted agent plus the chemo at the time of surgery. And, you know, it mimicked the NeoAlto trial, the NeoSphere trial, the Jepoquatro trial, where the two agents together, lapatinib and trastuzumab, had a better response rate in combination with chemo at the time of surgery. So the focus of this was really looking at the status of the tumor before and after a two-week run-in of the HER2-targeted agents, either alone or in combination. I think one of the major conclusions was the group of tumors that had pathologic complete responses did not show a lot of networking. So there was a primary pathway with HER2 being the dominant pathway that was turned on in those tumors that were able to achieve the PATH complete response. And the tumors that didn't meet that PATH complete response had a lot of residual disease, were much more complicated in terms of their networking and had other pathways turned on that we're going to need to understand to get the best outcomes in these patients. She put up an incredible slide that, you know, visually you can actually see that there are more, I guess, pathways activated or whatever in the patients who did not have a PCR. Do you think this is kind of where things are heading? You know, hopefully someday we're going to be able to do some, you know, multi-protein analysis where we pick out a cocktail of different targeted therapies and design them specifically for a given tumor and omit the chemo entirely. So I do think this is where we're going, but we're not there yet. So another paper I wanted to ask you about is the much-awaited initial report from the NSABP huge neoadjuvant trial on HER2-negative disease protocol B40. Dr. Baer presented that. Pretty interesting set of data. Can you talk about it? Well, we've been waiting for the B40 results for quite a while. It was an interesting pre-op trial with a two-by-three design and The first question was, would adding an additional chemotherapy to a backbone of docetaxel and AC have any impact on PCR? And separately, they looked at adding gemcitabine or capecitabine to the docetaxel-AC backbone. But then the second question was, would bevacizumab add in this setting? So a two-by-three kind of design, 1,200 patients, a big neoadjuvant trial, And to cut to the chase, neither the gemcitabine nor the capecitabine had any impact on pathologic complete response, and they definitely increased toxicity. So another trial that really doesn't support, when you have a good anthracycline taxane backbone, adding another non-cross-reactive chemo agent doesn't really improve that. But fascinatingly, especially in the light of everything going on with bevacizumab and breast cancer in the FDA, the bevacizumab did increase the pathologic complete response rate. 
And in this particular study, it seemed to be a bit more in the hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. So for the group as a whole, PATH-CR in the breast was 28% with just the chemo, and it went up to about 35% if bevacizumab was added. In the ER-positive, where we always get less PATH-CR in general from chemo, the bevacizumab took the chemo backbone PCR rate of 15% up to 23%. Of course, bevacizumab is not without its toxicities, and that's part of the whole hullabaloo and controversy about its benefits in the metastatic setting. In this trial, they saw some increase in hypertension and a slight increase in mucositis and hand-foot syndrome with adding the bevacizumab. Although it seemed like the patients did pretty well in terms of wound healing. Yeah, that was a surprise. You know, we've always wondered when we're doing bevacizumab pre-op trials exactly how much before surgery we should stop it. And one early presentation in a small number of patients did show some wound healing problems. But this study in, you know, 1,200 patients of whom half of them got bevacizumab really didn't show a lot of problem. I think in the study there was a nine-week break between Bev and surgery. What about their data looking at triple negative disease? So this was predominantly a HER2-negative population. When they looked at the group that was HER2-negative and ER-negative, complete response was about 47% for just the chemo alone, and it only went up to about 51%. So a small increase looking at the ER-positive versus the ER-negative subset in this study was really not powered. But again, the benefit almost surprisingly seemed to be a little bit less in the group that ended up being triple negative. I think we need to sort that out a bit further in future trials that are really powered to look at that subset. So I guess the question is sort of what does this mean clinically? What does it mean in terms of research? And I'll ask you, I was just sort of fantasizing, you know, we were just talking about neoadjuvant therapy, HER2 positive tumors. Suppose there were only 20% of patients who really benefited from bevacizumab the way we think is true of trastuzumab, except we couldn't figure out what 20% they were. Do you think that we would be seeing data like this? And do you think that there's buried in here a subset that really has a major benefit we just can't find? I'm certain that there is a subset of breast cancer that has some significant benefit from antiangiogenesis, specifically bevacizumab. And we saw some presentations back when trastuzumab was approved that showed that through modeling, if we had done those studies in an unselected population, we wouldn't have seen the benefit. So, of course, if only 20% of these patients are really benefiting, we're not seeing the real benefit from that in these big unselected trials. The struggle is we really despite looking pretty hard, haven't been able to figure out which tumors or which patients. And it might be more about the patients and their own underlying blood vessels and inheritance as opposed to the tumors themselves that would predict for who benefits from VEGF inhibitors as a class. Or I guess everybody could benefit, but pretty minimally. Right. I suspect it's the opposite. You know, having given it now in the metastatic setting, There are some patients who seem to have a lot of benefit and others who don't, and I haven't found any trend yet there. So we need to do this in good controlled studies. So ideally, how would you like to use bevacizumab for breast cancer as a sort of basic question? And for example, in the metastatic setting, you know, do you feel like if you combine it with chemo, there's a better chance of response? Do you think about it more in people, quote, who need a response? 
Well, the group that I struggle with, and I'm not sure this is really the right group in the end for bevacizumab, is the triple negative group who don't have ER-targeted therapies, who don't have HER2-targeted therapies. All we've got is chemo. And, you know, just anecdotally, I would say about half of those triple negative patients with metastatic disease are very sensitive to chemo, and we get good responses. And there's another group that you can't sort out up front that just don't even respond to chemo. So we need something. It might not be VEGF inhibitors, but we need something there that's smarter than chemo. And so... The group that I most commonly still using bevacizumab in in the metastatic setting is the triple negative group. And I've now more commonly for a variety of reasons, partly because I get patients more second line referrals after they haven't done well with their first line therapy, I am starting bevacizumab second line a bit in patients who just had no response to the first-line therapy, and seeing in a subset some substantial responses. I don't know if that's due to just the switch in the chemo or if that's due to adding the bevacizumab, but in a group that really progressed at first evaluation after their first-line chemo, you'd suspect those were pretty chemo-resistant tumors. So we need to study that group probably most of all, but I don't think we should just focus on the VEGF inhibitors. There's some other interesting classes of targeted therapies as well. So the next study I want to ask you about is, I would say, from my point of view, the most anticipated breast cancer presentation from ASCO, Joyce O'Shaughnessy's presentation of the phase three study of Iniparib, what we thought was a PARP inhibitor. And that's a good introduction, what we thought was a PARP inhibitor and called a PARP inhibitor the last several years. So Joyce O'Shaughnessy presented the phase three Iniparib trial, BSI-201. We all know this trial. It has a backbone in triple negative breast cancer of gemcitabine and carboplatin. And we had seen very exciting randomized phase two results at ASCO a couple years ago. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine just recently. But we needed the phase three trial, and 519 patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer were enrolled, and there was a randomization between aniparib or not. And I think Joyce started the presentation by saying aniparib is not a PARP inhibitor. It does inhibit cell cycle arrest. It inhibits repair of DNA damage. Some of what it does is PARP inhibition, but that's probably not the majority of what it's doing. Now, this trial had co-primary endpoints of both disease-free survival and overall survival. And with that co-primary endpoint, they lost some statistical power. They had to achieve much stronger p-value significance than if they had just chosen one primary endpoint. And that might have hurt them a little bit. But when you look at the data for the trial as a whole, progression-free survival was only improved by one month from the addition of aniparib. The response rate went from 30 to 34%. Overall survival, not even a month difference between the groups. It definitely did not meet the pre-specified criteria here. With respect to the overall survival, crossover was allowed in the group that just got the gem carbos, and 96% of patients eligible did do that. So that could have influenced the overall survival, but not the progression-free survival or the response rate. They then looked and did an exploratory analysis of the patients who were entering this trial as first-line metastatic recurrence versus second or third line. About half of the patients were first-line, about half were second or third line. And in this 
exploratory analysis that we can't put any statistical power on, the second or third line group seem to maybe have more benefit to adding the aniprib than the first line. The hazard ratio was about 0.67 for progression-free survival, 0.65 for overall survival. So disappointing. And triple negative might not be the best place to look at this agent. I think we better look hard at what this agent actually does and who might benefit most. And I don't think that we can translate from this anything about the true PARP inhibitors, such as viliparib or olaparib, that are more specific PARP inhibitors that are still in earlier phases of study. Those agents need to be carefully studied, and we shouldn't shut down any analysis of those with this result. You know, Joyce talks about this poster that was presented, I think it was in April at the AACR meeting, that showed, quote, Inepareb was not a at least uh, PARP1 or 2 inhibitor, unlike the other two that you mentioned. But they did demonstrate some kind of DNA interference, and they talked about telomere inhibition. Do you understand any of that? Not any more than you do, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. No, there's clear inhibition of DNA repair and cell cycle arrest effects, but there's a lot of different effects of this drug. And which ones are dominant, we don't know. You know, the slide that I was most struck by in her presentation was the one, I guess it was kind of a preliminary slide, but it looked at the intrinsic subtypes of the patients in this triple negative trial. And amazingly, they were like all over the place. So could this be another sort of trastuzumab situation where we just don't know what the HER2 is? I think you're right. And some of these studies are looking at expression of PARP, et cetera, and response. So I think with the true PARP inhibitors, we'll have more data on that. But with respect to the ERPR HER2 and the intrinsic subsets, we're going to have a lot more subsets. I mean, you know, the basal subset, now we're talking about being subdivided into clod and high, clod and low. It's not pure triple negative as basal is all the same. That's for sure. Getting back maybe more into things that really do have an impact in terms of daily patient care, approved agents, Chris12's presented again data on Iribulin, a drug that's now available. And this was a specific analysis looking at age and survival outcomes. Can you talk about that? Well, this was an interesting analysis of the EMBRACE trial, which is the trial that led to the approval of Iribulin in later line metastatic breast cancer. And the whole idea behind this analysis was to take a look at patient age and whether survival outcomes were different between the younger versus the older patients and whether the toxicities were different in the younger versus the older patients. So can we give older patients aribulin and do they get the same benefit? And they broke the patient age down. They kind of did a continuous analysis and then they broke it down by decade. The range in this trial was ages 28 to 85. There was an 85-year-old enrolled in the trial. The average age was 55. And to cut to the chase, the outcome of this analysis was efficacy held up no matter what the age and toxicity was really not substantially greater in the older patients. So aribulin appears to be a safe drug to give even in populations over 70 years, and its efficacy holds up. So we've got a number of options for metastatic HER2-negative breast cancer beyond endocrine therapy if they're ER positive, including aribulin. How do you sort of sequence these, and when do you use aribulin in your own practice, if at all? Well, I think 
Anthracyclines and taxanes are probably still the most effective classes right now that we know of, and I go with those first, usually, but I take patient factors into account, and the hair loss can be a factor. So I then kind of lump together capecitabine, gemcitabine, even vinerelbine, which technically isn't FDA-approved for breast cancer, as being another group where you don't have hair loss and they're maybe a little less toxic in terms of the nausea. They have their own toxicities. And then, you know, beyond that, we've now got ixabepalone and iribulin, and that's generally where I'm using those two drugs is kind of after the first two classes, although we've got studies ongoing looking at moving ixabepalone up earlier, and we'll have studies looking at aribulin, moving it up earlier in the metastatic treatment process. So right now I have used aribulin, but I am using it later line. Patients have a lot more pre-existing toxicities when you do it there. So it'll be interesting to see the toxicities in patients who aren't heavily pretreated already. How do you approach the same question in a patient with a significant peripheral neuropathy, either from prior therapy or just coexisting from diabetes, et cetera? Yeah, well, that's a tough one. I mean, the taxanes, the vincas, ixabepalone, and aribulin all have some neurotoxicity. So it depends what my other options are that I have left. I would prefer to use an agent capecitabine, gemcitabine, maybe go back to an anthracycline, depending on how much they got in the adjuvant setting, maybe in the form of liposomal doxorubicin. Obviously, if they've got a significant neuropathy and they have metastatic disease and they've had lots of lines of treatment, I'm going to carefully balance their quality of life for the remaining time they have with potential efficacy. But it's a conversation with the patient. And sometimes I'll, even with a significant peripheral neuropathy, I'll start one of these drugs, carefully monitoring the neuropathy and see how it goes. You know, interestingly, I've, especially after taxanes, giving vinerelbine, even though both can cause neuropathy, they don't seem to be so additive always. They seem to be a bit different. So a lot more needs to be learned about the neuropathy and what we can do to potentially prevent it or treat it. Yeah, we have a lot of interesting discussions in multiple myeloma nowadays about neuropathy. seems like oncologists have to be neurologists part of the time. But do you have any sense indirectly, you know, by looking at the data of the peripheral neuropathy risk with aribulin versus ixabebolone versus taxanes? Well, I think the fairest place to look at it would be, you know, in a previously untreated or first-line metastatic setting. For ixabepalone, we're going to get that out of the ongoing CLGB trial that's comparing weekly paclitaxel with weekly nabpaclitaxel with weekly ixabepalone. You know, ixabepalone, where it was approved, where all patients had gotten prior taxane, seemed to have a lot of neuropathy. But I'm not sure it's going to be quite as high if you're using it first-line. So the aribulin to date... And maybe not quite as much neuropathy, but we need the head-on comparison data. So I'm curious about your thoughts. You mentioned earlier the interesting things going on in the FDA in terms of bevacizumab. What did you think about Adam Brofsky's presentation looking at ribbon 2 data in terms of triple negative breast cancer? 
Well, I thought Ribbon 2 was an interesting trial, and it was second-line chemotherapy, plus or minus bevacizumab. I think we saw the overall trial, the Phase 3 results presented at San Antonio in 2009. It's subsequently come out in JCO. So this was a presentation looking at the triple negative group. And as we talked about, that's a group where all we have is chemo. So looking at a biologic is of great interest here. In this trial, you were allowed to use your choice of chemotherapy, second line, taxane, gemcitabine, capecitabine, venerelbine. And you know, for the trial as a whole, it was a positive trial, but progression-free survival went from 5.1 to 7.2 months. Overall survival went from 16 to 18 months. So you could question how meaningful those benefits were. About 160 patients of the whole Ribbon 2 trial were triple negative. It was about a quarter of the patients in the trial, and that's what was presented in this analysis. And there, I think we saw a little more benefit for the addition of bevacizumab to the triple negative subset. Progression-free survival went from 2.7 months to 6 months. Overall survival from 12.6 to 18 months, a very, very strong trend. The p-value was a little bit over 0.05, but a strong trend. You got to be careful when you look at p-values when you're subsetting and subsetting. And response rate went from 18 to 41%. So I think this does suggest that the triple negative population should be explored more fully in terms of the benefit of bevacizumab. But Again, I'll go back to saying I don't think it's all about ER and HER2 in terms of protecting the benefit here. So right now, I'm just kind of curious, what's your own experience today in terms of when is it that you're trying to use bevacizumab and how does that go in terms of reimbursement and approval and how do you think what you're dealing with compares to the rest of the country? Well, it's a challenge and I think we're all waiting to see what's going to happen with the FDA decision. Currently, I'm not having major problems getting approval for bevacizumab in the metastatic setting. I've had a few rejections lately. One patient I saw yesterday who we were able to get on the patient assistance program because they met the financial aspects of it. So I think I'm seeing maybe a few more rejections, but I've also still had a lot of approvals in the last couple of months, and I think that's going to have to sort out. In the, you know, the E2100 trial, which was the trial that got the accelerated early approval for bevacizumab, is a good solid study, you know, that showed a six-month difference in progression-free survival. And although it didn't show an overall survival advantage, it wasn't powered for that. It wasn't designed for that. And I think we have to explore, was that just an anomaly And then the subsequent trials that only showed about a month or most two months difference in progression-free survival, is that more based in reality? Or is there something about the weekly use of chemotherapy or particularly the paclitaxel in combination with bevacizumab that gave us that doubling and an absolute six-month difference in progression-free survival? I'm kind of curious as you see this debated, and I know you have a lot of contacts with the advocacy people, and I'm not sure exactly where they stand on this, but do you think that this is really a risk-benefit clinical thing that's getting played out right now, or do you think that the major dominant thing that's going on maybe not so overtly is an economic issue? Well, I think there's a lot of politics here, I think, is a big part of it, and although... 
the cost of the drug, the economics of it was not anywhere in the ODAC or the FDA kind of statements appropriately. They're not supposed to make their decisions based on that. If this were a cheap drug, I don't think we'd be having the same discussions. Yep. And I don't know what the right answer is, but at least we can talk about it. 